And now we come to the time where John is going to speak to us from those words. Let me pray for him. Are you going to come and join us? Lord Jesus, we lift John to you right now. We want you to come and speak to us. We bless him right now that you would touch all that work that he's done in preparation. But it would be your words that he speaks and brings to us this day. In your precious name, bless him, Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, Glyn and David and the worship team. Thank you for having me back. It's good to be with you. John Wesley is reputed to have once said, Give me a hundred men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin, and I will shake the whole world for Christ. Now, it doesn't take many people, men, women, or children, to make a very real difference for the kingdom of God. But it does require those who will be faithful, those who will persevere under pressure. I'm sure Wesley, that great 18th century church planter and father of Methodism, would have had much to commend about the church at Pergamum, just as the Lord did in his assessment of this particular church and others like it, maybe this one. As has been said, this is the third of seven short letters written to churches in Asia Minor, located in modern-day Turkey, Churches to which John obediently wrote down the words, the message of Jesus at the start of the book of Revelation. Now back in the day, this short letter was written towards the end of the first century. Pergamon was devoted to wealth and fashion. But unlike uh, Ephesus and to a lesser extent Smyrna that Dave spoke about last week, Pergamon was not a commercial centre. Though it was possibly the, the wealthiest of the seven churches, its material success came uh, of the cities came from being a centre of pagan worship. That place was uh, home to a monumental altar to Zeus, said to be constructed in the form of a gigantic horseshoe, whose podium alone was about 18 feet high. And there are countless other pagan structures. History tells us the old temple of Augustus, venerated by the cult of the emperor, dominated the skyline. And it was in the midst of such a society that the church faced not only persecution from outside, but also more subtly from internal opposition. There were, as there always are, those who would seek to undermine the work of God and hinder the growth of his people's gospel witness. But in such circumstances, people of God can depend upon the faithful one. There are some unusual and powerful and potentially confusing ideas contained in these few short verses. And I just want to make uh, five brief observations from this Bible passage, each concerning the person of Jesus. Firstly, notice that Jesus raises up a sword, not just any sword. We read that it is a sharp 
sword and it has two edges. Elsewhere in Revelation, it's said to come out of Jesus' mouth, symbolising cutting speech, communicating the very words of God. In the opening chapter of Revelation, you remember that that uh, Jesus holds the, the the seven stars in his right hand, the the uh, the churches, the leaders of the churches, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its brilliance. You can just picture the the rapier-like sword glinting in the face of God Himself. And the sword of the Lord is described throughout the Scriptures in different ways as the Word of God. Ephesians six says, "Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit." which is the word of God. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's significant that Jesus has a sword at the start of this letter and he's prepared to wield it, to brandish it, to, to raise it up in fighting ungodliness in all its forms. The truth of God cuts to the very heart, doesn't it? On the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 2 that after Peter had preached, the people were cut to the heart and said, what should we do? And the reply came, repent and be baptized. And on that day, 3,000 were added to the church. Scripture is powerful. The word of Jesus, the word of God cuts to the very heart. The Bible tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. And elsewhere it says, faith without works is dead. And I came across a a quote from uh, the late American pastor, Dr. W.A. Criswell. And he had an interesting take on this idea of the gospel of Jesus as a two-edged sword. He said, the Christian faith has two cutting edges. One is faith the other works. One is believing, the other doing. One is evangelizing, the other ministering. The Christian religion is a great conviction. It's also a great commitment. It's a great doctrine, but also a great deed. It's a great message and a great ministry, a great sermon and a great service, belief and life. It's a noble orthodoxy, that's correct belief. It's also a magnificent orthopraxy, correct conduct. These are the two hemispheres of the Christian religion, separated, the message from the ministry, they bleed themselves dry, but together they're a glory and power before the Lord. We are to deliver the whole message of Christ, he went on to say, for a whole person needs a whole religion, half a gospel is not enough. Those were some thoughts there about the the sharp-edged sword, the the gospel that changes lives. It changes churches. It changes community and society if only we let the Lord loose. A passage goes on to say that Jesus not only wields the weapon of truth, but it makes it abundantly clear that Jesus recognizes loyalty. Our hope is in the faithful God. Faithfulness 
It's something that's needed, as well as perseverance. Uh, listening to, to Molly and Jack there and the way that they, they devoted themselves to, to the piano, it reminded me of the, uh, of the uh, illustration of the church choir director frustrated with the sporadic attendance of all the choir members of rehearsals for his annual choral concert. At the final rehearsal, he announced, I want to personally thank the pianist for being the only person in the whole church choir to attend each and every rehearsal during these past two months. And at this, the pianist stood up and, and bowed and said, that's the least I could do, considering I can't make it this evening. <laughs> it's not so much how we start that matters, it's how we finish. There's always an opportunity to come back to the Lord. And maybe you're watching this uh, broadcast today and you've drifted away a bit like some of the folk in the in the churches that we're considering in revelation it's never too late to come back we need to have that encouragement to know that jesus knows us and our situation verse 13 in this chapter begins i know where you live Nowadays, it's used as a threat, isn't it? Send the boys round. But it's not. Here, Jesus literally says, I know, I know your situation. I know where you dwell, where you reside, where you live. I know your circumstances. And he knew that church at Pergamum were in a difficult place, described twice as being where Satan's throne is where the devil resides. The message calls it Satan's turf. Not a very nice place. Last week, Smyrna was described as the synagogue of Satan. Quite dramatic language. Does Satan have a home? Does Satan have a throne? Well, he's described in this, in the Bible as God's enemy, as the one who is the God of this world. So I suppose anyone who who, who allows him to, he, he sets up a throne in a sense in their lives. And although we could say this was a centre of pagan worship of places that were against the true and living God, we can let these things come into our lives. We can let the things against God, we can serve the things, the, the one who is against God. Although the, Satan, the throne of Satan ultimately holds no power but death, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus knew. Jesus was saying, I know, I know you. And Jesus knows you today, and he knows me. He knew the believers in this city remained true to his name and didn't deny the faith, even under great persecution, even persecution that led to death and this is very old, this message, but it's ever relevant when we think of how our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering even to the point of martyrdom. We need to pray for them to support where we can. As they stay true to the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given among people whereby we must be saved. Antipas was slain for holding to his name. Now, this character doesn't appear, as far as I can see, anywhere else in the Bible. 
We don't know much about him, but we do know that he was martyred. He was described as a faithful witness. Tradition holds that he was born, uh, he was burnt in fire uh, for casting out demons in Jesus' name. But whatever the specifics and the truth of the matter, the fact is that the point is clear that he died for his faith. God values the faithfulness of his people. He sees, he knows, he understands. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That the old song was going through my mind when I woke up. And uh, there's different verses, aren't there? The cross before me, the world behind me. Though none go with me, still I will follow. God values faithfulness. He holds the sword. He values the loyalty. And Jesus rebukes evil in verses 14 and, and 15 here. Uh, we read that he had, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam and to the Nicol- those of the Nicolaitans. What were these heretical doctrines? Well, as that details are difficult to understand, although we can look back into the book of Numbers for clues as to the sins that Balaam encouraged. And Numbers 22 tells us that the, perhaps the famous story of the, of the donkey, uh, where um, the donkey sees the, the angel of the Lord uh, with, a, with a sword drawn, interestingly, and turns aside. Um, go and read it. I won't stop and discuss, describe it all now. But Balaam is mentioned several times, and it's fascinating But the two general principles highlighted in this passage are readily applied to our own day and generation. See, Balaam and the Lycolations cast stumbling blocks before the faithful in two ways, encouraged idolatry and immorality. Idolatry is to worship anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And immorality is to indulge in behavior which is morally wrong. And so these false teachers had infiltrated the churches, various churches, and they still do. It's very easily to, very easy to get off track. The call to purity is there for every church today, including this one, DCC, but everyone. It's so important for us individually to follow Jesus' ways and not to lead others astray. Remember what Jesus said. He had harsh words for those who cause others to stumble, specifically the little ones. He said it would be better for such a person to be thrown into the sea with a millstone round their neck than to lead one astray. Harsh words, indeed, recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. And what we fill our own minds and churches with is important, and how we speak and influence others really does matter. We in the lockdown are trying to do the Joe Wicks regular workouts, more success sometimes than others. But I've noticed some of his older stuff. There's a, a notice on the, on the wall of his, of his gym there, and it says, you can't out-train a bad diet. I'm not sure where the quote originally comes from, 
But I would say you can't out-train or out-run a good spiritual diet. Commitment is required. Just as you can't live on junk food and expect an occasional exercise session to get you fit, neither can you live an impure life most of the time and expect to to tune into this or any other church broadcast or a, a slight act of worship to keep spiritually fit. No, we need to be healthy I had a, a booklet through the post this week, and it was a spiritual health check by a chap called Carl Lafferton. And one paragraph caught my attention. He said, instead of asking how healthy am I spiritually, we could, ha- we could ask how healthy is my church spiritually? Because there are very few Christians thriving while their church is stagnating or struggling. God saved us to be part of his people. He placed us in a body of his people, and we each grow or shrink spiritually as a member of his people. That's why in the New Testament, the vast majority of letters are addressed to churches, and the contents aimed at the whole church, not individuals merely. False teaching can easily get into churches, and it it may already have got into the early church. Remember, Peter refers to those who followed Balaam back in 2 Peter 2. He says they had left the straight way and wandered off to follow the ways of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. You see, there is sin pays its wage, which is death. But quoted it just now, the free gift of God is eternal life. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was likely a Gnostic group practicing unrestrained indulgence. Purity within the church is essential. The process of purification individually is often called sanctification. A long word simply meaning to become holy. And John Wesley, I started with, urged his flock to always press on towards sanctification, noting, I observe wherever a work of sanctification breaks out, the whole work of God prospers. But it isn't easy. It takes discipline and commitment. I think it was John Newton, actually, who said, it's easier to rail against a thousand sins of others than to put just one of our own to death. And the great C.S. Lewis shares this personal story, which also illustrates how hard it can be to chase after holiness. When I was a child, Lewis says, I often had toothache. And I knew if I went to my mother, she'd give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I didn't go to my mother, not until the pain became very bad. The reason I did not go was this. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I didn't want. I wanted immediate relief from my pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they'd start fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. Our Lord is like the dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of a particular sin. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked. But if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. 
that got me thinking. We sometimes like to do things all on our own terms, don't we? But if we've got ears, let's listen to what the church, what the Spirit is saying to the church, what the Spirit is saying to us individually. That's what we need. It's true that Jesus raises a sword. He recognises loyalty. He rebukes evil. He requires repentance. Jesus calls upon this church at Pergamum to repent or he will come in judgment. Repentance. The late author of the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson, defined repentance as to return or to turn around and go. Peterson said in one of his excellent Bible commentaries that repentance is not something you feel, but something you do. And it's essential you get that in your head if you're going to understand what the Bible means about repentance. You don't repent by feeling bad or sorry, by simply taking a deep breath, praying a prayer and then feeling better. You repent only when you turn around and go back or towards God. It doesn't make any difference how you feel. You can have the feeling or not. What's essential is that you do something. The call to repentance is not a call to feel remorse for your sins, It's a call to turn around so that God can do something about them. In other words, the folk at the church in Pergamum, and maybe you also, are called to apply true repentance, not simply mouth it. I like the the old story of the the soap manufacturer and the pastor walking together down a a seedy part of a a busy city and then into the, the the glitzy, busy part, pre-COVID, obviously. And the businessman casually says, well, the gospel you preach hasn't done much good, has it? Look, there's still much wickedness in the world and lots of wicked people too. And the pastor said nothing, but soon they passed some, some children playing and they were quite grubby and mucking around. And seizing the opportunity, the pastor said, I... I see your soap hasn't done much good, for there is much dirt in the world and a lot of dirty people around. The businessman said, "Ah, well, that's because soap's only useful when it's applied. And the pastor said, exactly, so it is with the gospel and repentance. To repent is to act. Thinking of the vaccines at the moment, we praise God for them, But they're only good, they're only useful, they're only effective if they're applied. We can admire them, we can we can talk about them, we can recommend them to others, but unless we apply it to ourselves, it's not effective. The church must repent. We must repent personally. At times, church heads, or even the whole church, needs to repent. We cannot afford to be tolerant against those who teach things other than that which Jesus has made clear. Jesus himself threatens to come and to fight those against. Think of that sword, defensive and offensive. Someone fighting for you. We're talking about the ABC of, uh, of becoming a Christian the last time I was here, about admitting and believing and confessing or committing our lives to Jesus. 
And one of my pastor friends said, oh, I had an, had an ABC of, of salvation. He said, but it, it came back from the algorithm group as two Bs and an E. But I thought, well, this lockdown, probably three hours of the gospel would fit in quite well here. We need to realize we have need of forgiveness. And then we need to repent. And then we can rejoice in the forgiveness that's full and free. It's serious stuff. But we don't have to be in fear. Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins. And we can, another hour could be, rejoice. Those who have an ear, listen to what Jesus is saying to the churches. Jesus raises a sword, he recognises loyalty, rebukes evil, requires repentance, and finally he rewards the faithful. The Bible never says we're to fight temptation, it says we're to flee temptation. But we are to resist the enemy. And those who resist and overcome, Jesus gives three things in this closing verse. Hidden manna. The manna was what fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. The daily provision of a faithful God. And Jesus himself represents the manna. Hidden from some, revealed to others. Have you seen that he is the one who described himself as the bread of life? He even said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died But this is the bread that comes down from heaven, that a person may eat and not die. I am the living bread. And Jesus gives that manna to those who overcome. Jesus gives of himself. But he's also promised a white stone. What is the white stone? Well, again, this is another thing that only comes in this passage. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible, I can see. And there are loads of different theories about what this might mean I looked I came across about half a dozen of them but the two I liked was one historically juries are known to have used uh, voting as ballots black and white stones and one was used for condemnation and one for acquittal a powerful picture of those who overcome will be acquitted by the blood of the lamb by the cross of Jesus But another plausible explanation for the white stone, and I I like this one, is to do with the idea of the ancient Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors of athletic games. They were apparently personalised with an individual name and could be used as as a token, as a ticket, to a celebratory banquet. The Bible speaks about a banquet, a heavenly banquet. Jesus spoke about it often. And the, so does throughout the scriptures and Revelation. Those who overcome, those who are safe in Jesus, will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And upon this note, stone will be a new name. Isaiah prophesies that you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And we don't have time to go into the many occasions in the Bible where encounters with God brought a change of name. Just think of Abraham and Sarah, of Jacob to Israel, of Saul 
to Paul and so on. Christian, Christ's name, Christ's one, could be such a name. You can know this for yourself. That last, I've decided to follow Jesus. The last verse comes as a challenge. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Decide now to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Jesus in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. And people speak all manner of things against you for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. There is eternal reward for those who stay faithful to Jesus who is the faithful one, the one who raises the sword, who recognizes faithfulness and loyalty, who rebukes evil, who requires repentance, who rewards the faithful. Therefore, dear friends in this church here, in these difficult days, encourage each other with this message. And as we finish, I just wanted to end with a challenge that I found in that book I mentioned just now came across these questions in his, in his concluding his spiritual health check questions. Ask you as individuals and maybe as a church these five questions. I'm going to read them and pause briefly after each one and then we'll be finished. Are you in love with Jesus? Are you grateful for the cross? Are you excited about the new creation? Are you committed to God's people? Are you pursuing growth in godliness? And as a church, ask yourself those questions. As Roger, your pastor, is halfway through his sabbatical, remember he has an important role and responsibility. And when he comes back, hopefully having had time to reflect, and you as a church, please hear and take notice of and act upon what the Spirit is saying to this church, to the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Love nothing but God. Hate nothing but sin. Amen.